Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari with us this week to help break down what is going on, not just in the Middle East. We're going to leave the Middle East for a moment, but to figure out what is going on here in the United States with the increase in anti-Semitism and the increase in Jew hatred and the increase in attacks. Uh, here to break it down for us is my good friend, Josh Hammer, senior editor at large at Newsweek, host of the Josh Hammer Show, syndicated columnist, research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation, where he co-hosts the NatCon uh, Squad podcast. And he's also a writer, a host, a college campus speaker, and all around opinion shaper. Welcome to the show, Josh. Lisa, that's a very flattering introduction. Thank you for your much needed outspoken voice during these very difficult weeks. Uh, same to you. I know you've been uh, extremely vocal in just bringing context, facts, logic to the current narrative, uh, which has definitely come a long way since October 7th. Um, instead of condemnation for Hamas, a terror organization, we see so much condemnation for Israel, for retaliated strikes against these um, Hamas outposts. But still, um, the, the, the world is holding not just Israelis accountable, but Jews everywhere. Um, very unfortunate because I think a lot of people, I'm talking about the average American, the average news consumer, even someone who's not even interested in news, is finding it very difficult to go to TikTok or Instagram just for what they go to, uh, makeup, recipes, dance, what music, whatever it is, and now feel like they have to choose a side. Like, like it's some sort of color war, some sort of basketball match. Um, and they're feeling overwhelmed, right? They feel like both sides, like they feel like, wow, you know, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what I'm seeing. And obviously, in terms of sheer numbers, uh, the anti-Israel, anti-Jewish posts, um, as well as the mainstream media that helps bolster that opinion, uh, is leading the narrative. Um, as somebody who... Uh, is a narrative shaper. You are somebody who has a finger on the pulse of just um, Americans, how they live, how they get their politics, what they believe, how they're voting. Um, you know, for somebody who doesn't know the context and is just seeing these slogans, accusations, words like apartheid, genocide, occupation, what's your advice to those people who are just feeling so overwhelmed right now? Well, it's a, it's a tough question to answer. I mean, I'll do the best I can, of course. Look, I mean, this has been eye-opening for a lot of us. I mean, you know, I think a lot of us knew that anti-Semitism was very bad. I mean, FBI, federal hate crime statistics year in and year out have been fairly, fairly consistent for years now that Jews constitute somewhere between 55 and 60% of all religiously motivated hate crimes in America, despite being roughly two two and a half of the most percent of the United States population. So we knew that it was bad from that perspective. We knew that it was getting very bad on college campuses, but I don't think we knew that it was this, this bad. I mean, the stuff that we are seeing right now, whether it was those students at Cooper Union literally locked in the library, whether it's these genocidal annihilationist chants all across the college campuses, literally everywhere, terrible incidents at University of Wisconsin-Madison that I saw the syndicated radio host Dana Lash tweet out the other day. Harvard, obviously, at 31. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I, I mean, this is clearly ubiquitous yeah. at this point there. It, it's important, I think, to contextualize that it's only gotten this bad fairly recently. So I'm a fairly young guy. I'm 34 years old. I graduated college in 2011, Lisa. This was really not a thing, like, when I was on campus. I think it really only started to get bad maybe the two, three years after I left, really kind of accelerating even more so over the mm -hmm. past few years. So you have to kind of pause and think, well, 
what fundamentally has changed over the past 11, 12 years or so? And I can pinpoint a few factors. It's not a complete solution, but I can I can at least point to a few factors. One is you have seen kind of the maturation, the maturity of, I think, a prior generation of many kind of Muslim immigrants, many refugees and asylees who we brought into this country without any kind of, you know, proper vetting to make sure that they fit in with Western values to the extent that that vetting is even possible. I probably should caveat. And then you also have seen the rise, frankly, of this critical theory and this DEI and this ideology that suffuses not merely higher education, although it is clearly pervasive, if not ubiquitous there, but it's all throughout K through 12, lower education as well. They are starting them on DEI stuff um, really as, as early as elementary school, sometimes as early as kindergarten. And the entire point of the modern DEI martyrdom victimhood complex is to base it's, it's basically kind of neo-Marxism to an extent where you kind of have winners and losers. You have an oppressed class and an oppressor class. You have the ruling class, the ruled. And from that kind of fundamentally Marxist mentality, when you look at Jews in America, well, Jews historically in America, at least over the past hundred years or so, have actually done quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they came here very poor. I mean, obviously, my own great grandparents, um, you know, when they came here during the classic uh, Ellis Island uh, immigration wave, along with all the other Ashkenazi Jews, they were dirt poor. My great grandfather lived in a traditional kind of Lower East Side tenement and all of that. But uh, the story of Jews in America over the past hundred years has been a very successful story. So viewed from this kind of Marxist DEI critical theory mentality, I think it's very easy to kind of point your fingers at the Jews as being a problem and then kind of taking that to a macro, a global scale. Similarly, by the same exact principle, it is very easy to point to Israel, which has punched way above its weight. It's a small country of eight to nine million people, but it, it, it consistently competes at, at a global level when it comes to innovation, me medicine. I mean, you name it. I, I mean, basically any every metric that a country can be measured on per capita, Israel is in the upper or it's in the upper tier. So from all these perspectives, I, I think it's it's really just gotten a heck of a lot worse. But it obviously has been very difficult, I think, for many of us to process and then also to just to grapple with, frankly. Yeah, um, you actually wrote an op-ed in the Daily Mail. You said, defund the vile brainwashing universities. America can't ignore woke, Jew-hating academia any longer. Take your tuition dollars elsewhere and do it now. Um, a very stark call to many people. I mean, look, Jews, for the most part, along with many other immigrant communities, value education. They yeah. value especially the elite colleges and that that's how they raise their children right to to aspire to get into the ivy leagues and to get into these wonderful schools where this is happening but the bigger problem here i think and i, I think you'd agree um, i want you to listen to a clip is that we're not even able to acknowledge that there's a problem at our universities let's play clip number one peaceful protesting people have the right to do that uh, but we're just not going to get into blow by blows of what's going on across the country. The president has been very. So she can't even condemn it. I mean, you're a campus speaker, right? So you've been on these these um, these campuses, especially some of the more problematic ones. Um, I actually was listening to you say that it wasn't a problem when, when you went to school. I actually was one of my majors was Middle Eastern studies and it was a problem. And I graduated a few years before you, um, Rutgers University, which could be called the Gaza Strip of universities. Um, but I, I should admit, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing had I not been in those situations where I was 
spit on, I was, you know, bullied. I was because I took a certain stance and the professor knew that I was Iranian, that I had a different perspective than that bully mentality, that 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 anti-Semitic mentality that was in the classroom. And he would always try to instigate by calling on me. Every time I would call, they would start like sneering and whispering and kicking my the back of my chair. And um, I, I recall this very, very well. And um, I guess it, it was in certain pockets going on, but not in a global scale. When you listen to um, KJP, what are your thoughts? I mean, yes, we have a problem. Well, why can't she even acknowledge it? So, you know, first of all, Lisa, to your point, I mean, Middle Eastern studies and Near Eastern studies departments have been a problem for a very long time, for sure. I mean, going back, you know, probably 30, 40, maybe even 50 years or so. I think what we've seen more recently is kind of the bleeding of that ideology to other departments, right. to political science, to history, sociology, anthropology. I mean, you know, you name it, basically, right? Yes. Um, look, Kate. Right, exactly. Um, you know, Karine Jean-Pierre at the very beginning of the conflict was actually shockingly good. I mean, I think I, I tweeted out, you know, praise words praising her for probably the first time ever, actually, when she called Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar's initial statements. I think she said that they were disgraceful and repugnant. I mean, you really can't ask for a whole lot better than that. But, you know, Karine Jean-Pierre, I mean, at my own publication, Newsweek, it was before I, I went to Newsweek. I think it was maybe a year or two before I started working there. I think it was in 2019, she she wrote an op-ed, you know, very critical of the pro-Israel lobbying group's influence in D.C. So she is kind of personally on the record on this one in a in a not so great way, I think would be an understatement, frankly. Um, so it was only kind of a matter of time, right, until she started going wobbly or frankly, just going bad on this issue. I, th I think it was last week when we saw where there was a question asked about skyrocketing anti-Semitism and she couldn't even answer the question. She pivoted immediately to so-called Islamophobia. I mean, ludicrous stuff, crazy stuff here. Look, from my perspective, Lisa, you know, I live in South Florida. I live near a lot of shuls, a lot of kosher restaurants, kosher supermarkets, a lot of just Jewish infrastructure in general here. You know, I have never seen this kind of security in my life. Um, you cannot go to anything that is Jewish related without there being, you know, cop cars, police officers. Um, you know, but personally, I, I have been a concealed carry holder for seven years now. I have I have never been content, at least in my adult life, to kind of let the police look after me. I, I ultimately want to take matters into my own hands. And I think a lot of my fellow Jews are starting to come to that realization as well. I actually went to the shooting range fairly recently with a number of Jewish friends here in Florida. I think a lot of Jews are looking into firearm ownership. I mean, this is a really harrowing time right now. And the inability of the Biden administration and its spokeswoman, KJP, to, you know, to uh, empathize with us. I mean, the, the just patent inability to do so is obviously a massive smack in the face. Yeah. I mean, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, well, why, why should Jews live that way with so many security guards around their schools or being afraid of sending their schools to uh, sending their children to school on the, the Hamas day of rage? I mean, what does this have to do with Israel's policies, right? I mean, why, why aren't people asking the bigger questions as to what does, would this ever be tolerated against another group? Or better put, had Hamas attacked France, for example, and I tweeted this out, if there would be a huge, on the same scale, attack of Hamas against France, would the French people have to go around posting memes and political cartoons and graphics and giving examples and analogies as to why the world should believe them that, Ham that Hamas attacked them, that they're the victims, that they're the ones who are hurting? It would never happen. It sounds silly. It sounds silly. Would the world ever say the French had it coming? 
if Hamas attacked France, you'd never hear these kinds of things. So why is it that it is accepted against Jews? Why is it that Jews now have to take it into their own hands to be secure? Uh, we saw the example of the Cooper Union Library where they said to them, you can hide in the attics because we cannot physically keep you secure. We cannot ensure your safety. Why? Why is this allowed? You know, Jew hatred is the world's oldest form of bigotry. It is also currently the most fashionable and politically correct form of bigotry. Mm -hmm. um, um, and it, it, it's really tragic that that is the case. You know, I think American Jews in particular, you know, in the post-World War II, the, the post-Holocaust period, there was kind of this, you know, half-century-long kind of golden age of, of American Jewry period, right? I mean, call it from 1950 to, to the year 2000, roughly, right. give or take, Right. Um, you know, born in 1989, I was kind of born into this milieu. And I think for, you know, a certain generation who kind of came of age, you know, the baby boomers, maybe who kind of came of age right after the war, they thought that it would forever be that way. But, you know, you know, the the ancient hatred just never dies. I mean, if, if there's one thing that we know about anti-Semitism, it is that it is entirely illogical. It takes any number of various forms. It is the, it is the chameleon of all bigotries. Mm -hmm fascists, the Jews are the communists, but to then to the communists, they're the fascists. I, I mean, they're basically just the enemy, no the shape-shifting enemy of whatever anyone in power wants mm -hmm. them to be. So then kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, given kind of the, the current, you know, DEI, critical race theory, ESG, all of that regime here, the Jews, because they have been so successful here, you know, I think are so easily scapegoated. And Obviously, you know, Israel, to your point, I mean, obviously, you know, in France, in your hypothetical, they would never have to do that. The United States, by the way, if the Mexican, if the Mexican drug cartels operating there in the Rio Grande Valley and the high Sonoran Desert in Texas or Arizona, if, if the Mexican drug cartels started shooting or invading across the border, killing the equivalent of the number of Israelis who were slaughtered on October 7th, then the equivalent of Americans would be roughly 48 to 50,000. Is there anyone in the world who would think for a second whether the United States didn't just have the right, but had the solemn obligation to send the tanks rolling into Mexico to hunt down and murder every single drug cartel leader to protect American citizens in this hypothetical? There are the ranchers on the border, the folks in, in the Rio Grande Valley. No, of course not. I mean, the question obviously answers itself. Jews have always been held to a double standard when it comes to this. The Jewish state in particular is very much always held to a double standard. You know, I forgot who said it. It might have been Douglas Murray, who's been excellent on this topic. I think it was Douglas Murray who said that Israel is the only country in the war, assuming the only country in the world, Lisa, that when they start a war, they are immediately told you can't actually win that war. They're the only country. I mean, any other country is allowed to kind of finish its military objectives until the logical point, which is defeat and unconditional surrender of the enemy. Israel, by contrast, every time they fight a righteous counteroffensive, and Israel has never started a war. These are all defensive operations after an enemy incursion. They are the only country that is told when operating in this context that they cannot win. And they go above and beyond, by the way, to satisfy all of come the Western humanitarian concerns. They drop the leaflets in, inside Gaza, thus undermining their own military objectives, by the way, by telling the people in these buildings, you should get out of here. We're about to bomb this place. They go above and beyond, but it is never good enough for the so-called international community because the so-called international community is just replete with Jew hatred. I mean, it, it sounds like it's it's not something that could easily be fixed, whether it's in terms of its politics in the Middle East or or here. Uh, Yair, Yair Lapid, not somebody I, I quote very often, said um, in, a, in a clip that's actually going viral um, that if you play both sides, you're actually siding with Hamas. 
And I found that to be, you know, the, the short of it, right? If you're playing both sides, um, which people think that they're actually being very benign in doing so, well, you know, there are victims on both sides kind of thing. Um, you know, you 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 have worked for the mainstream media. You know what's out there. You are probably, besides for living in Southern California, uh, you are probably always outnumbered in terms of where you sit, what you do, where you're looking at. You're a minority through and through, even though many people would look at you and say you're a white privileged man. Um, in many ways, you are challenged all the time. But putting on your you know, commentator hat, your journalist hat, what can be done to win the PR war? And I'm not saying win the PR war in terms of rah, rah, Israel has to win this war. I think one of the saddest things about this current conflict is that it will be it will be over and i do believe that israel will um uh, accomplish what it has set out to accomplish but what happens the next day when many people including you and i who go to work and, and cover this and 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 are responsible for providing the facts when we go back to a world that has now like the jig is up right we know how people down the street want Jews dead. We know that people are in the media are fudging facts in order to push a Jew hatred agenda forward. I mean, how can this be ameliorated? I'm not going to say corrected or 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 overturned because I don't think we have that uh, that ability. But how can this at least be be made better? Yeah, I mean. It's a tough question, obviously. Um, look, I mean, I mean, anti-Semitism is obviously not going anywhere. I, I hate to break it to your audience, but you know, anti-Semitism has been with us since time immemorial. It is not going anywhere. You know, now over the past hundred, hundred fifty years, it has been radical Islamic Jew hatred. Before that, it was, you know, in in Europe for centuries and centuries, it was Christian Jew hatred, which, thank God, is not nearly the problem that it once was. But the point is that it, it rises in some form in every generation. I mean, you know, Lisa, we read this every Pesach at every Passover Seder in the Haggadah, you know, uh, they rise to destroy us every generation, but the blessed one, you know, uh, the, the, or the Holy one, blessed be he with an outstretched arm delivers us. Right. So, I mean, we read this in the Haggadah literally every year and sure enough, it is true. But, you know, having said that we can take some concrete measures. I mean, I, I, again, I am a huge proponent um, of, of self-defense. I genuinely think that every Jew who, who either, you know, who does not currently own a gun should at a bare minimum be familiar with 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 how to function, how to use a firearm with firearm ownership. Um, if, you, if you're not comfortable owning a gun, then, you know, make sure you're only going to institutions that have actual security there, things like that. When it comes to the media aspect there, I'm also a huge proponent of using our market power as consumers to basically just stop utilizing these institutions that are peddling Jew hatred. That could either be media institutions, that could be the New York Times or MSNBC, or by the same exact principle, it could be institutions of higher education, you know, institutions like Cornell, Columbia, UPenn, Harvard, whatever, that are simply doing an inadequate job of protecting their Jewish students and ferreting out Jew hatred. And what that means is that if you're a donor, you should stop donating. Frankly, if you're a parent, you should stop considering sending your kids there, no matter how purportedly, quote unquote, prestigious the university may be, for the very simple reason that your children are not going to be safe there. And this is not going to be a particularly enjoyable or, or formative experience for them spending four years on that campus. I mean, that, that doesn't bring me any pleasure to say. I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier, Lisa, you know, Jews in America have 
very high, you know, very, very highly prioritized education. I went to fairly elite schools myself. It doesn't bring me any joy to kind of say that there, but there's no way in a million years right now I would want my you know, son or daughter, God willing, and, you know, in future years to go to a place like Harvard, which is doing a horrific job right now. I mean, we have to kind of just use our power as consumers, you know, the same way that conservatives earlier this year kind of had the backlash against Bud Light, you know, their stock price plummeted. You know, we can use our power as consumers to try to effectuate change. And from these media organizations like the New York Times that are peddling this horrific blood libel when it comes, and it is a blood libel, when it comes to the Gaza hospital story of two weeks ago or so, we have to just basically get people to cut the cord, to cut their subscriptions, and ultimately inflict financial bottom line pain on our domestic enemies because they know their financial bottom line, if nothing else. How about in terms of the, the I, I totally agree with you. I don't know if, if in terms of certain boycotts, we can make a difference in terms of, um, you know, Bud Light was 50% of the population. You know, we look at conservatives versus um, Democrats, but when you look at, I, I speak to a lot of, of Jewish people who feel like they are so outnumbered in terms of, for example, um, an Israeli designer, Dodo um, Bar-Or, was just cut from two very, very uh, popular fashion sites because she posted about Hamas. Um, and even though there are many um, Muslim designers who have have posted much more than uh, just condemning, uh, they have, you know, they, they're, they're continuing with anti-Semitism on their posts, but that hasn't been punished. Um, many people say, okay, we're not going to shop from them. But when you look at Jews being 2% of the population, it becomes very difficult. Um, and then you think, well, if we if, if Jews stay off college campuses, um, you know, what what are they doing? They're really handing over that college campus to that that narrative, that ideology. And what are what are Jewish students supposed to do? Go to community college and and kind of miss out on the opportunity? I I, I just I don't know. I'm having the conversation with you because I think that you're in the fray and you 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 get both sides of this. It's very difficult when you're two percent of the population, but yeah. yet so hated. But but there are ways to be influential. I do think that the donors, the major Jewish donors that have pulled their funding, uh, has has created some some backlash, and I think that they're definitely um, making a difference in that way. Yeah, and you can also look at the prospective employers in graduate schools. So you know, earlier in this conflict, right. Ken Griffin and Bill Ackman and the hedge funders said right. that they would not hire people who signed that Harvard statement. I mean, I'm a big yeah. fan of announcing boycotts on, on hiring of certain student groups, institutions. You know, I'm a lawyer by background, Lisa, and the federal judge that I clerked for on the Fifth Circuit, James C. Ho, you know, he's been a trailblazer over the past couple of years by announcing law clerk hiring boycotts from mm -hmm. Yale Law School and Stanford Law School because they are insufficiently protecting free speech oh. for, you know, various students on campus. And, right. you know, I, I mean, and we've actually seen at least at Yale Law School, you know, they hired you know, a more right-leaning professor very, very recently. It, to me, it looks a heck of a lot like that is a direct response, frankly, to the allegations of, of unfair treatment of students. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of kind of, you know, prestigious employers, graduate school admissions, basically, again, using their market power to say right. that they will not do this. The, the, the donors are obviously a very important piece of the puzzle here. You know, I heard anecdotally from a friend a day or two ago, I have not had time to verify this, but I heard that, that Harvard's budget is actually set to take a, a massive hit next year because Harvard is is very weary 
or are they very wary of, of tapping into their actual endowment principle? So they kind of operate in kind of a similar kind of annual budget year in, year out. I, I heard that the number was roughly 20%. Again, I can't verify that. I have not had time to look it up yet. That's a huge hit, frankly, if true. That's going to require some actual serious cuts probably to faculty. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, God willing, those faculty members will be, you know, crazy people and kind of the Middle right. Eastern Studies Department um, or, or the DEI bureaucracy places right. like that there. Um, but uh, I hear you loud and clear. I mean, it is kind of a catch-22. It is obviously a predicament. I, we also need kind of the formation of some new institutions, you know. So um, at the university level, I've had a lot of friends, albeit mostly non-Jewish friends, who, who have gone to Hillsdale College in Michigan there. I've been an outspoken proponent for many years now, trying to kind of get my, my my Christian Hillsdale alumni friends to kind of get the university to invest more in Jewish infrastructure, kind of get like a kosher dining facility, a Chabad on campus, stuff like that, make it a more enticing option for Jewish students. Or we can kind of, you know, try to get donors to essentially build our own, you know, a Jewish leaning version of Hillsdale, right? So, you know, some new institutions could be a part of the answer here. Obviously, easier said than done. I mean, you know, these things don't happen overnight. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they all have, you know, centuries accumulated lay prestige in the in the minds of many Americans. So there, there, there are no very easy answers here. But what I do know, and again, I'm not a parent yet. I'm getting married in like a month and a half. So, uh, you Yay. know, God, so Congratulations. Like God, thank you. So, <laughs> so God, so God willing, I will be soon. But what, what I do know is that, you know, it, my fiance, soon to be wife and I work very hard to kind of raise our kids the way that we want to raise them from, from ages, you know, one through 18, you know, good Jewish values, good patriotic values, all, all the kind of the traditional stuff. You know, why would we risk then sending them to a campus that is just so hostile and mm -hmm. it's going to try to brainwash them? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Right. Yeah. Um, so and hopefully I, things will be better by the time your uh, future children are, are ready to go to college. But my my big question to you, um, and we'll end on this because I, I didn't realize we would run out of time, but I could speak to you for a very long time. Obviously, these are not easy topics to tackle. Um, do you think. Based on, I know there have been many calls in the last couple of years, especially um, for Jews to leave the Democrat Party because it just doesn't serve them. Do you think this current conflict will inspire, motivate um, Jews who are, you know, leaning left? I mean, whether they're leftists or Democrats or what, to either leave the party or, or at least be able to recognize that this is not where they're welcome? Well, I certainly hope so, Lisa. I mean, I'm a very outspoken conservative. I mean, not just um, Israel issues, but I'm basically everything out there. I have been for really my entire adult life. I mean, I've been preaching this for forever. I mean, going back to when I was in college. I mean, I mean, to me, it has been obvious, at least since the Obama administration, that the Democratic Party was no longer the friend of the right. Jewish people, was no longer the friend of American Jews, was no longer the friend of, of the world's only Jewish state, the state of Israel. And I, I guess it has taken this absolute tragedy, this right. horrific, horrific pogrom, the worst slaughter of Jews since since Hitler. I mean, I, I guess it has taken this for some people to kind of be snapped out of their delusions. But I can, I can say anecdotally, I have heard any number of stories of people who have said that this kind of has radicalized them. I mean, you know, my parents, believe it or not, it's kind of funny because I'm such a conservative, but my, my, my parents are, are, are kind of moderate Bill Clinton era Democrats, you might say. And they now tell me that they are ready to vote for the Republican next time around, even if it is Donald Trump, who they cannot personally stand because they are just so, so exacerbated by what they have right. seen happen right now. And 
the the inescapable reality, Lisa, and this is a very dark thing I'm going to say, but it just happens to be true. It is true that the United States taxpayer dollars helped subsidize the biggest slaughter of Jews since Hitler. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I mean that that's just Absolutely. true. The money to the right. Iranian regime. Draw the lines, right. right? Right. So, so I, that reality, if nothing else, I think will radicalize a lot of people. Well, let, let's hope that at least there is um, knowledge, right? We just hope that people aren't closing their eyes to all of this because the only difference I see between, and this is just my observation, um, between Jewish Republicans and Jewish conservative uh, uh, other Democrats is that the Republicans saw this coming in terms of what's going on in America where the Democrats are just shocked and surprised and, and really feel abandoned by their party, by, by those who they, they, they chanted right alongside BLM and the Women's March and all them, all the same people who are turning on Jews right now. Uh, so we hope that it's, it's, it's a wake-up call for many uh, and uh, we stop bigotry in all its forms if, if that's really what we are uh, aiming to do. Josh Hammer, always a pleasure. Please check him out, follow him, read his tweets. You'll be so educated uh, and, and more. Read his op-eds uh, and follow his uh, podcasts. Josh, you're wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Congratulations on your wedding. And we hope to have you back on very, very soon. Well, thanks so much, Lisa. And once again, thank you for your very powerful voice during this time. Likewise, thank you. And for those of you who'd like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. You could also get our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And to subscribe for our daily top 10 email, go to lisa, uh, sorry, foreigndesknews.com and you can sign up there. Thank you so much. <laughs>